Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life here on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast every week. And our guest today is Brian Harvey. Brian is an independent space analyst located in Carmel, Indiana. Among his many areas of interest is the integration of existing space technologies into new markets and applications. And Brian, thank you very much for taking some time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Let's start right with the basics and discuss what is technology transfer. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fundamental. The basic idea is to take a, a technology that's either new or um, under development and find new users for it through a variety of vehicles and uh, different instruments, basically. So has this so been going on? Has this been going on a long time? Well, for the U.S., it started back in 1980 with what's called the Bayh-Dole Act. And what it uh, allowed was for universities to take rights in a property that the government had funded. Right. So that allowed universities then for the first time to do um, tech transfer of intellectual property, which actually gave them then a financial incentive and what they had developed. And so where did it go from there? Well, and then there was kind of a rough patch going. So then in 1986, the Congress created the Stevenson-Widler Act, and it introduced a concept called CRADIS, Cooperative Research and Development Agreements. Okay. And through those, the government collaborates with the private parties to do research on whatever there is interest in, uh, with the end goal being then of transferring that technology, sometimes just among the people in the crater, but more often to people outside the crater within the industry. Um, the crater vehicles become very popular because it's actually outside a lot of the uh, government restrictions. The federal acquisition regulations um, are not involved, so it gives you quite a bit of flexibility and what you're trying to develop for transfer. Well, who's offering this kind of technology for transfer? Is it strictly the federal government? No, it's actually quite a mix. The federal government is definitely involved, but um, universities throughout the country and the world are involved, as well as companies throughout the U.S. and world. The, like I said, the federal government here in the U.S. kind of picked it up in 1980. But then these other parties have gotten involved to a varying degree. I mean, universities would say they've had a lot of success in this. Companies through licensing would say they've had a lot of success in this. And the government, you might say, has kind of come late to the game. Um, so it's really trying to streamline the process and that's where it's been very interesting because the government has tried to find ways to reach out to potential users and that's what 
we're still kind of struggling with how to get the technology into the hands of new users. So at this point, certain for-profit organizations have been created um, to actually harvest that technology and then find people to use it. Um, one example in space would be FadTech out of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And they work a lot with the NASA lab there to find technologies that of space interest that could be transferred around the country and potentially the world as the text might be related to space. Is licensing technology expensive for the end user? Well, <laughs> it can be depending on your, I guess you might say your level of sophistication. As um, in so many things, it depends. <laughs> it, re it really does depend. Um, I mean, licensing is not the only way to do tech transfer. There are other less expensive means just to uh, copyright. Sometimes you could just consider a webinar a form of tech transfer, like mm -hmm. what we're doing today. You could consider a form of tech transfer if we were like, talking about a specific technology. Um, and in the past, really before the internet, publications a very common way to transfer technology but um with the advent of the internet the instruments have become a lot more sophisticated the only problem with um, licensing is you have to have a patent or a copyright and the the whole patent process can be very expensive and can be quite drawn out the copyright process is a little less complicated but yeah, it isn't cheap to get a patent and it can be pretty expensive to license that patent, really depending on your level of sophistication and if you're actually, for instance, cooperating with the government and a creator, then you might uh, work out terms favorable to you to acquire that patent, maybe for less or maybe on an exclusive basis for a certain amount of time. It just, it all depends on what you're able to work out in the licensing process. You know, Brian, I think when most people think about technology transfer, they think about hardware, but it sounds like you're talking more about uh, almost intellectual property as opposed to a, a piece of something that they can then take and build on. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, it is actually hardware and software. and for a while here in the U.S., there was a controversy about trying to license uh, software that had been copyrighted, but that's now occurring. So yeah, it's a lot more than just hardware. It, it can be, it can be know-how, just how to do something, how to build something. Yeah, there's there's a lot more to it than yeah, just handing over a piece of equipment to somebody yeah. who didn't know how to use it. <laughs> So why does the government want to transfer technology? Or as you said, some of these are coming from universities and other companies. Why do they want to transfer this technology? Yeah. Yeah. So they have different motives. For the government, it's actually mandated to do technology transfer um, to supply a return of investment to the taxpayer. So labs of a certain size are actually required to do 
tech transfers mandated by the Congress. Um, universities and companies have a slightly different motives. You might say that they're, you know, different from the government. So they're kind of looking at it from the um, profit motive, especially the companies. Mm -hmm. The universities, a lot of times, are interested from a research perspective. And if they make some money off the deal, you know, they're thrilled. But, yeah, they do it more for just um, the research angle and how they might be able to improve what it is they're working on. They could maybe bring a technology in that could help them on a process they're, they're trying to refine and then license that out. But with uh, a lot of the university, a lot of universities, they have medical schools. Right. And so they have some medical technology that they're trying to license. And some of them have just been wildly successful um, getting 40, $50 million maybe a year in royalties. But most of them don't really have that kind of return. Let's talk a little bit about what gets spent by the U.S. government and some others on actual research and development that then uh, results in technology transfer. Is, is this something that people would be surprised about the amount of money that's being spent? <laughs> well, you might say shocked. Okay. <laughs> because the numbers are pretty big. Just last year, according to NIST, uh, the U.S. government spent $150 billion on R&D in the U.S. And it depends on what measurement you're using, but if you look at the licensing revenue coming back from that investment, it probably isn't even 10%. Okay. Yeah, so there's... There's room there to grow, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so what you're saying is that about 10 cents on every dollar is recouped by the government through um, through the use of technology transfer, through selling that technology to other for to other people to use, and we, the taxpayers, are picking up the other 90%. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I mean, it, like I said, it isn't just licensing. Okay. So that's the stuff you can measure easily. But like in NASA's case, they distribute a lot of um, software free to anyone who wants it. Right. So that may have, you know, really great return that they can't measure. Um, so that's kind of the other side of it. When you're trying to look at the numbers, a lot of people do concentrate on the licensing, but it isn't always that simple. It's hard to measure some other of these effects like NASA's program. And that's probably a good governmental example, but universities will kind of like give away stuff that they shouldn't. It's a, it's, it's a mixed bag. We're, we're still, you know, trying to figure this all out. Are foreign governments involved in developing technology that they, that they license as well? Yeah. Um, but, you know, our government has regulations concerning mm -hmm. who you can partner with and who you can send technology to. So that's where it gets a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with a foreign entity, especially if they want to develop a technology that we have on the munitions list and 
we really don't want to encourage, we meaning the government doesn't want to encourage technology transfer to be used for sending technology to people we'd rather not have it. Sure. So there's, there's definitely that level of awareness, but uh, in the global economy, we've started to realize the U.S. that there are going to be situations where it's perfectly appropriate to deal with a foreign entity. They just have to pass certain tests. Like if you wanted to do a tech transfer with China, that would probably not be as easy to do as something with the UK or France. Might be looked at a little askance, but particularly right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yes, it's kind of political, but in, in, this, in this climate, the international climate, the global economy, I think we're trying to be more flexible. But that's, that's still being worked out. You have ITARs that you have to worry about and new munitions lists, and you have to get State Department approval, and there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Brian, let's bring this back around to sort of the space economy because that's that's our focus here at Xterra. Give me some right. examples of technology that has been licensed and some of the outcomes that deal specifically in the space commerce arena. Yeah, so the, the space arena is also very interesting because um, it does use, well, I mentioned Kratos, but the uh, Space Act Agreement is sort of like NASA's equivalent of a Kratos. Mm -hmm. And then they also use SBIRs, the whole government does. And maybe, yeah, to make it space-related and to give a little bit of a shout out for where I am, there's a company down there, Louisville, called TechShot. Okay. And they've received several NASA SBIRs, and a lot of those have been played out on the space station. Okay. So it's a really good example of where, through NASA funding a small company through the SBIR, they've been able to help with the research efforts on the station. And, and S SBIR is Small Business Innovation Research Grant, basically, right? Yeah, there are three phases. And so you move along phase phase one, two, and three. And by three, you're supposed to have something, you know, marketable, commercializable. Right. And the first two stages are kind of experimental. And what's interesting about the SBR now at NASA is that they've put in a request to double the size of the program from 200 million to 400 million a year. Okay. Just to give out grants to these small businesses. Um, so that's, that's really been one area where it's done exceedingly well. I mean, there, there are just so many. Well, of course, could, everyone knows that SpaceX has been a has been a great uh, user of NASA technology. That's how they got pretty much a lot of their stuff off the ground. Exactly. So it's it's kind of interesting because you're exactly right about that. But then later on, they had to sue NASA 
when they wanted to do some launches that they felt they were getting unfavorable treatment from um, for the very equipment NASA had helped them develop inadvertently. So it gets to be kind of a mixed bag. But yeah, they, they got their start from NASA, really, and then from Elon Musk's own ingenuity and perseverance, they really pushed, pushed the envelope and developed, uh, as we all know, you know, just a wildly successful product. That's that's a really good you know, NASA example. If you want one, another big one from like uh, the military side, everyone knows GPS. Of course. And GPS right now is valued at about $1 trillion. And it's solely a government-funded enterprise um, until the advent of smartphones about 10 years ago. And now, you know, all the smartphones in the U.S. are run through our GPS system. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how they've ended up being gargantuan. You know, it's probably the most famous and successful government type transfer ever besides maybe the internet. And of and course, that, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, I was going to say the only difference with that is um, it came out of the Air Force and an Air Force lab, not NASA, but it's an Air Force lab dedicated to space activity. And of course, then there are companies like Garmin who have taken that GPS technology and, and turned it into so many things. It's in aircraft, it's on my bicycle, it's in my car, it's everywhere and on wristwatches as well. And, and that's one of those things that has been made possible through that technology transfer. Precisely. Yeah, so that's a good point because all these things have come from tech transfer and a lot of people you know, don't even know what happened for it to be created. They're just happy to have it. And that's okay, but, you know, the people within the industry should have an appreciation for this because it can really help you create a lot of jobs and money for your company. That's that's what this is all about. It's about finding technology to help grow your company or start your company. And really, it's an economic development tool. It just isn't the quickest one. It, it can take a little while for commercialization to occur. The, the standard idea is about five to 10 years. So it, it isn't a quick thing. Are there any other examples that come quickly to mind about something that has come from the, the space program that has been transferred into everyday use here on Earth? Oh, there are a lot, a lot of pretty common examples. There's trying to think of something maybe a little more unusual. Something like beyond the, Velcro or, or electric screwdrivers, which we all know about. Yeah, because they've also developed stuff for the astronauts for medical application and some of those medical technologies, um, like in imaging, have been applied here. And that's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff they've done for the astronauts that has come back to Earth. And that's, you know, really the big success right now is trying to get products, at least in terms of space, back to Earth. But also, there's a big effort on to develop 
type transfer for the cislunar space between the outer limits of our atmosphere and the moon. And that's really going to be fascinating because of all the technology that will be produced, trying then to get that technology back back to Earth and being used successfully in a variety of industries. So, Brian, just, go ahead. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's It's fascinating. What does all of this mean for space commerce? We're kind of at really the barest beginnings of the commercialization of space. What does all this technology transfer? How is that going to affect how space commerce grows? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question because that's what we're still trying to work out because a lot of the laws, rules and regulations that drive all this need to be updated. Like with the satellite industry, with the launch of these so-called mega constellations into space, mm -hmm. there's a big fear of um, them running into each other. So there's, there are various efforts to create um, space traffic management, STM, and that's a worldwide effort now. Mm -hmm. That's very important because we're going to be using those satellites for a variety of purposes and we need to make sure they're safe and not causing debris and then running into each other. So that would be one sort of timely example of where we really need to work on refining the laws and rules and regulations so we can have a safer um, cislunar economy. Uh, in terms of the moon, that's that's just a really big challenge right now because of there not being any property rights on the moon per se. And so NASA just put out a call this Thursday for companies to bring moon dust back to the earth. Right. So what they're trying to do is show that you can actually take resources from the moon and claim them as yours. And that really hasn't been done yet, but a lot of companies are saying, well, that's exactly what we need to happen. We don't want to, have, let's go to the time and effort of developing these technologies and then find out, well, you're going to have the whole thing taken away from you because you don't actually own it. So that's, that's going to be something to work out. And rather sooner than later, because there are companies that are planning to go to the moon, um, whether we have this all worked out or not. And you don't want... You don't want, you know, to have a lot of unnecessary conflict on the moon just because we couldn't figure out the proper laws here on Earth. Do you see there's going to be a lot of exploitation of the resources that are on the moon? Uh, not obviously in the next 10 years, maybe, but in the next 50 years? The moon is it. Because the whole idea is to develop it then so we can go on to Mars. Right. Um, but before then, yeah, the, the idea is to take what we have from the moon and then bring it back here to Earth. But, yeah, like I said, those, those laws and rules and regulations really need to be worked out because another thing we're trying to work out now is who within the U.S. government can license these activities so they can legally go to space. 
because right now there's a good chance that the FCC or FAA may not approve of certain activities, which means, at least for the U.S., we couldn't send these payloads into space, and especially to the moon. So it's, it's unfortunately kind of complicated to answer your question. We really need to think a lot harder about the kind of legal environment we need to create so tech transfer can happen more quickly than it would if we didn't have this all worked out. So Brian, as a space analyst, do you have a forecast in your head for the space economy, where it's going to go, how fast it's going to grow, what areas are going to be the true growth areas? Yeah, it's, it's only going to happen as quickly as we can work out all these infrastructure concerns. The moon is definitely, like I said, the, the next place we're going to be going. Um, but, I mean, commerce is ready, <laughs> chopping to the bet. Right. And it's going to be really hard to see where this all goes until, you know, we get our ducks in order. So I'd be, you know, hesitant to kind of predict where this might be going because it's taken us 50 years since Apollo to get this far. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that it doesn't take another 50. Well, I think that's been borne out in so many technologies that you know the first 50 years are the hard ones. And then it seems like every 10 years or even less that the technology seems to grow exponentially as opposed to at that same rate. So it would make sense that as we get better at that, miniaturization of satellites, miniaturizations of circuit boards, miniaturization of so many things, lighter, faster uh, uh, spacecraft, and the cost of launches coming down, it would seem that this is all going to start to accelerate pretty rapidly to me as a, as a layperson, Do you get that same sense? Yeah, it's, it, it should. It might, might be in fits and starts, but yeah, we're definitely on the right trajectory. I mean, the head of uh, NASA is always, Jim Bridenstine is always saying, well, this is going to be an effort in sustainability. We don't want to go to the moon and then leave like we did with Apollo. We want to go back and stay. So that it, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes us just to do that. But back to your point, there are a lot of enabling technologies that are going to kind of follow suit just because that's where the government money is going. And they're all kind of expecting the government to lead the way. And we can do that to a certain extent, like through the grants, through SBIR and CRADIS and other instruments, licensing. But right now, we're still waiting on to, to be a demand. Just one That's th- what we're working on. Just one thing more. Does the technology transfer work in, in reverse? I'm thinking about companies like Sierra Nevada Corporation and Bigelow Aerospace who are creating the inflatable habitats and, and that type of technology. And with NASA wanting to go back to the moon and stay, how much will they kind of back incorporate those kinds of technologies into what NASA is doing? And I know NASA has done a lot of funding on those uh, for those two companies, but is that something that, that works both ways? Yeah, I mean, that's another great point, too. It does work both ways. 
So it always it doesn't always have to be a, a one-way transfer. You can transfer things out and you can transfer things in. So yeah, a lot of times that's actually what NASA is trying to do when they contract somebody. They're trying to learn from them. And that's yeah, definitely it's a collaborative effort, like you're suggesting. And that that should work. Some some collaborations, as you know, work out better than others. Of course. But, yeah. But you can definitely, yes, um, transfer technologies in, definitely, just to improve your outcome. Well, Brian, it's a fascinating subject, but sadly, we're already out of time. That half hour slides by pretty quickly. Well, I hope I could fill in some holes for you. Absolutely, you did, and we certainly appreciate it. So thank you for joining us on the program today. Brian Harvey. Brian Harvey is an independent space analyst located in Carmel, Indiana. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. You can find us on the web at xterrajsc.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.